highlights. Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we explore the roots of creative genius and talk about where ideas come from. That is every episode. No, not really. But we do talk about creativity and the creative process. And I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined as ever by Kay Tempest Bradford. gone back to the early days of introductions, I think. One day we're going to come up with some sort of introduction that involves a lot of leaping monkeys and and unicorns with rainbows coming out of their butts. Ooh. It's going to happen. I like it. Yeah. And maybe we can get video and that'll be, I mean, the sound of all of these happenings will be amazing, but maybe we can also get video for a members only perk. I'd be totally down with that. So Tempest, we had a request from one of our listeners to have a particular type of guest on the show. Do you want to tell everybody what that request was and who we found to fulfill it? Well, who you found to fulfill it, really. Uh, The request was uh, to find somebody who is a game writer, uh, particularly of RPGs, so that they could talk about the difference between um, writing, say, a rule book or something along those lines, which is meant to inspire other people's creativity as they create the role-playing games around their own tables at home, um, and how that might be different from, you know, being a prose writer. So when I saw that request, the first person who immediately came to mind was my friend Monica Valentinelli. Uh, And Monica is, uh, she has made most of her, you know, bones in uh, her career writing for role-playing games, but she's also a prose fiction writer. And she's also just like very creative in general. Um, I'll see if I can tweet out some of her beautiful jewelry around the time that this episode comes out so you can see like other aspects of her creativity. Um, But Monica was the first person who came to mind for that reason. And I I think I will let her introduce herself. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Monica Valentinelli. I write games, stories, and comics. And a lot of my work, um, you can find that on booksofm.com. The most recent thing that came out, uh, I've been doing some writing for Dungeons and & Dragons. And I wrote this adventure through, um, it's called Organized Play. And they have a group called the Adventures League where you can earn points when you participate in this organization. And I co-wrote this adventure called Over the Edge. It's It's got a lot of really creepy bits in it. Um, there's this underground cavern of skulls. And yeah, I mean, it, it's really cool if you like, you know, different sorts of environments and trying to put puzzles together and whatnot. I really had a lot of fun with that. So yeah, so that's Monica. The other thing that... Uh she's done in recent years, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later, is that she's one of the people who worked on the Firefly RPG. And I remember at one point when she was, you know, still in the midst of working 
on it, she asked me, she was like, so what's up with Firefly fans? And I was like, oh, girl. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it, it's interesting because when you're working on something, whether you're doing it as a media tie-in author, like say you're, you're writing like a Star Wars book or a Firefly book, you know, that's sanctioned in the world um, by the, the franchise owner, what, whatever, I don't know, all the backdoor machinations. But you have to not only work within, you know, the constraints that are set by the, you know, overall big boss of, of this world, this franchise, uh, this property, but also you have to think about what the fans are going to say and do about the things that, that you're involved in. And so I, I was like, oh, I feel such sympathy for you because the Firefly fans, they're not, they're not just going to sit back and be like, well, that upset me a little bit, but that's okay. Nope. <laughs> any kind of sci-fi fan, any kind of sci-fi fan. Well, this is true. It's like just basically whatever fandom becomes involved, it becomes a whole different, um, it adds a whole other layer to it. Um, and, you know, one day I actually... I would love to to have a series of conversations with people who do um, other types of work in in existing media um, because you know obviously there's games, there's comics uh, as well as media tie-in books, and just talk to them about like that balance. Um, but that wasn't what we were talking to Monica about uh, for for this conversation. I've often wondered how comic book writers pick up and start, you know, like Captain America or whatever, you know, people have been writing, many people have written Captain America. And how do you pick that up with all of its um, intricacies and backstory and established norms and continue writing that? And I know they, they tweak things a little bit as, as they go and kind of make it for them. But I've, I've always wondered about that. Like, what is that like? That's got to feel really immense in a lot of cases. Um, I mean, well, obviously what you do is you, you start writing Captain America, then you turn him into a Nazi, which works out for everyone. Yeah. That was everybody's favorite Captain America thing. So I hear. Well, um, so I, (laughs) oh man, we could talk about this for days, but, but instead we will We'll drive back to the topic uh, at hand and not talk about Hydra Cap as much as I want to go on and on about it and how much it makes me angry. Yeah, um, it's not okay. So, I, <laughs> so um, as I said, Monica, you know, she works in a lot of different types of writing fields. But I asked her how it was that she got into gaming because when she went to college, she um, went into the creative writing program for prose. And so I was like, well, then how did this whole gaming thing come up? So I start, got started writing for games because I was looking for ways to get paid to write um, rather than just write on my own. And in gaming, a lot of the companies had um, what are known as open submission guidelines or open calls where you could submit something. And then if they like your work, what they do is they give you a call and they try you out and train you up to work for the game. And I did two things at the time. I did one fiction piece, uh, trying to get that published, which did. And then I also did one games piece, which ended up getting published. And I worked for for a small press company. So the first um, game tie-in story that I wrote is for a game called Promethean, which has a lot of um, Frankenstein feel to it for White Wolf. And that was a very gothic cathedral type story and whatnot. And that was published um, through their through their company magazine. 
And then the second piece, which was was based on a game called Nuomenon, which was inspired by Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis. So it kind of hit all my kind of hit all my sweet spots, right? It hit the literary side and then it hit the gaming side. And it was this very surrealist kind of crazy game where there's this uh, mansion called the Silhouette Rouge and each room is its own environment and you could write different themes about the environment. And I wanted to write about fairies. So I wrote this really frenetic fairy piece that ended up being part of the game. So, um, and that was through a small press company and from there, I had done quite a bit of work with them for the next couple of years before I started looking at other opportunities. So the thing I like about this is that it it seems as though getting into games does not involve like 17 levels of gatekeeping, uh, or at least in uh, with the smaller independent um, shops. Um, because I feel like with writing even though it, you don't necessarily need to have an agent or need to get picked up with one of the big publishers in order to have a publishing career. Like there's a lot of ways um, to be a successful indie author. But if if what you want to do is you want to get published by, uh, you know, quote unquote, real publishers or, or at the very least like publishers that that have some sort of power to like get your book into different bookstores and in front of people and et cetera. It seems like, you know, you have to go that route of, you know, you write the book and then you get the agent and then the agent gets you a publisher and then, and then, and then. So it looks like, I I like that at least there's a path in gaming for people to be able to just like, you know, send in their stuff and be given a chance. Yeah. And, um, it's very, I don't know. I don't know what word I want want to use. Not democratic and not egalitarian, but like it's uh I don't know. It, it feels like it it levels the playing field a little bit so that you can do a little bit of research and you can you know, do the thing as opposed through as opposed to going through like gatekeeping and uh you know well, first I have to write the thing and then I have to find the agent and then the agent has to talk to a publisher and maybe that'll work out and maybe it won't. And then, um, you know, that, that whole dance is really frustrating for, you know, I think everybody who publishes. Uh, so it's kind of nice that there are some, some ways that you can write some things that you can write where you don't necessarily need to go through that process. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it helps if you actually understand games. Like, yeah, I, I was talking to Monica recently about um, intellectual property stuff because this is something that she is very knowledgeable about. And you, you know, she was saying to me that not only should I think about what's going on with, say, the book that I'm writing and the world that I'm building for the book that I'm writing, but you know, once I'm done with that and once I'm starting to move through the publishing process, also thinking about, well, will this work in a games context? Like, should I be pursuing having this world appear in some sort of role-playing game that I, that I help create. Um, can it, you know, should I also be talking to comics publishers about ideas that I have? And should that be a part of like my sort of overall business strategy? Like once the actual work is done. Um, and I, I always hesitated to be like, well, yeah, sure. It could be a game because I don't actually play role-playing games. So I have to rely on other people to, 
to be the ones to put that kind of thing together if it were to happen. Yeah, I and it's not even that I'm like, oh, role playing games are terrible. They're of the devil. I heard that once <laughs> on the evening news oh that Dungeons and Dragons uh... is a gateway to Satanism. Um, it's just never been my particular thing. So it's interesting. I'd never played Dungeons and Dragons until I agreed to do it on the internet for an audience of thousands of people. And I was like, sure. Huh. I think that's a really great <laughs> idea. Um, but uh, I, I enjoy playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I don't think I could do it with a group of people who I didn't know. I don't, it wouldn't be fun to me to just like randomly throw people together. And that's, I know that's not typically how, you know, gaming groups are formed, but um, yeah, the whole Satan I've I've answered questions on Facebook where where very uh, fundamentalist Christian friends are like, "Well, my child go to hell if they play Dungeons and Dragons." I'm like, "Do they go to hell because they read Lord of the Rings anyway?" <clears throat> I mean, if Dungeons and Dragons really was a thing that could open up the gates to hell, do you think that we would have as many annoying people in the world as we do? Oh my gosh, you're so right. You think <laughs> right? You think the bullies of the people who play D and D would have survived childhood? If D and D was a portal to Satanism, and yep. and like no, think these things through, people. At any rate, <laughs> literally nobody listening to our podcast even would have that thought. But that's okay. I so, think we probably scared them off a long time ago, <laughs> right? I'm sorry. Um, one of the things that that Monica had talked about at the beginning, where she was saying, you know, I I was looking for ways to to do writing, um, so that I could get some money, which hey, super double plus, uh, valid, um, but I was I was thinking about that uh, part of the conversation in relation to uh, a tweet that Chuck Wendig made uh, the week during which we were recording this podcast, not necessarily the week that it comes out, um, but he was tweeting about like advice that he would give to his younger self or his younger writer self. And one of the things was to, you know, to write the things that he would want to read and to, yeah, just like to, to rip things from his own heart as opposed to thinking about, Oh, what, what is the market doing? Um, what, what is the trend right now? And I'm going to write to that so that I can like be on trend and, and get sold and whatnot. And that's, he's like, I, I would tell my younger self not to worry about that as much as writing these things that I really love, which I was like, okay, that sounds like absolutely fabulous advice and totally valid. Um, and so with her saying that you would think like, I'm like, oh, she's wrong, but no, she's not. Because another thing that Monica said is that you, um, you know, you just shouldn't, even if you're like trying to work at becoming a games writer as part of your income or whatever, that you should not work on games that you don't love. Mm -hmm. And probably this applies to like just working on, if you don't love gaming period, you probably shouldn't do it. But anyway, I'll let her go on. I would not recommend as an aside working on a game for, or a setting that you don't absolutely love because it shows in the writing. Um, these settings often are very intensive, whether they're small or large, and people really love games. Um, there's a lot of people that read them. Gamers are avid readers, and they really divest themselves in the text, and they love reading the manuals, and they love reading how the pros flows. So if you really enjoy you know, creating or participating in a world, what games do for writers is that it plays to collaboration, and it plays to the strengths of working with other people. So yeah, I I love that idea and and also that I again 
that advice coming from her. Just work on the things that you love because if you don't love it, it shows. Mm-hmm. I think it's like that's that's huge. That's huge throughout like all creative endeavors, I think. Well, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, because as we're recording this, uh, Star Trek Discovery debuted last week, right? And so you want to talk about rabid fans. Star Trek fans are very, very particular about their Star Trek. And, uh, you know, I am, Justin didn't like the premiere so much, but, uh, well, he, he has problems with them not being canonical in all respects um and I had a little bit of that but I could tell that the writers knew Star Trek like this was created by people who know Star Trek and they've decided to make some some changes but you can tell through the writing that they just really really love the franchise and I I think it it shows it's a a good example of that like you have to love what you're writing because otherwise it's just going to be boring and disingenuous. Yeah. And I think it's, this is the kind of thing that you see across a lot of different media properties, um, as well as books in general, like, um, is, I can't remember who is involved in Star Trek Discovery. I keep wanting to say it's Brian Fuller, but that's not right. Cause that was, that was American gods that Brian Fuller did, I think. I think he's doing this too. Maybe he is doing that too. So, well, I, I just remember when the announcement came down, in my brain it was Brian Fuller, and I was just like, oh, that's a really good choice. And the reason why I felt that is because I was a big fan of Hannibal. And Hannibal, um, obviously based on Hannibal Lecter, the the serial killer um, who was in jail in Silence of the Lambs, not the one that Jodie Foster caught in the basement with the lotion. That guy. Oh, my God, that guy. Um, Buffalo Bills were, like, the worst things ever. Super creepy. Super creepy. Um, And so Hannibal started off sort of making you think that it was a prequel because it takes place before Red Dragon, which is the first book in the series that Thomas Harris wrote. It was Red Dragon, and then it was Silence of the Lambs, and then some other stuff happened later that we all talk about. Um, And... So the the TV show Hannibal takes place before Red Dragon. It's like the lead up to Red Dragon. And the show fooled us all at first into thinking that it was a prequel. But as the show went on, it became very clear that it wasn't a prequel, that it was AU fan fiction. And I loved that. And it's one of the things where I was like, Brian Fuller clearly loves this material. You know, he clearly actually has loved... Red Dragon, the book, and Silence of the Lambs, the book. He really liked Silence of the Lambs, the movie. I I can only assume we don't talk about Red Dragon, the movie. <laughs> we just don't. Uh, Manhunter. It's very clear that he he watched a lot of Manhunter, which is the I think the first movie that they ever made based on Red Dragon. And this is before Anthony Hopkins became Hannibal Lecter. Is a whole thing. Um, it starred the guy who was originally on CSI, William Peterson. And yeah, so. And I love that we have now reached a point where we can sort of allow that, like that that it that kind of thing still makes for good media. I have not yet watched Star Trek Discovery. I'm a huge Star Trek nerd. I'm waiting. I'm I'm gonna binge it all uh, in <laughs> December. That's my plan. Just gonna have like I'm gonna wrap myself in a blanket. I'm gonna be like, okay, let's do this. But because I I know that he's he's going to treat some elements like it's going to be more like AU fan fiction. I'm actually really cool with that. Just like having mm-hmm. that that mindset in my brain. 
Um, because yeah, it's like you can create a great, I'm sorry, AU stands for alternate universe. I keep using these in fandom <laughs> terms. Um, and it's like what people label, like if you're say writing a fan fiction and you've decided to like take the characters, but put them, you know, you're using the same characters, but you're putting them in a different world in a different situation. And sometimes it's a, what if, like, what if X had happened 10 years ago instead of Y? And that's how the fan fiction goes. Sometimes they're just like, and everybody from that show now works in a Starbucks and here's their character dynamic working at Starbucks. Friends. Whatever. I, <laughs> Sorry. Friends, the SJ, SG1 edition. So <laughs> I've seen that combo. It's hilarious. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't mind that so much as long as it, it is clear from the show that they know that they're doing that and they're not just like F canon. It's stupid. No one, no one likes it because let's, let's face it. Some of the things that are canon, like all of Enterprise is canon. If I was making a Star Trek TV show, mm -mm, no, I would, Enterprise doesn't exist. Yeah. So I'm going to spoil a little bit of Star Trek Discovery for you and tell you that so far there are zero instances of the use of decontamination gels in Star Trek Discovery. I approve of that. I do. <laughs> I do. I didn't even last one season. <laughs> totally sticks to my... The decon gels in Star Trek Inter- Enterprise are just not... Anyway. Because it was bullpucky. It was so bad. At any rate. So, so, so yeah. Um, I, I am really... I'm just... I'm here for this idea of just like writing... The yep. things that you really love, because like that is that seems to be the way that it works out to make you the happiest creatively, even if it doesn't make you the most money. But but then like it can make you a lot of money. Like think of the number of people who write Star Trek or Star Wars media tie ins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that was probably like, eh, whatever, it's the job. But I'm sure that so many people are like, oh, my God, I get to write in the Star Wars universe. Well, so exciting. I've been watching uh, Delia Dawson wrote Phasma about you know, Phasma um, and watching her squee over this book over the last few months has been amazing, you know, leading up to its release because sh- you can tell she loves Star Trek, Star Wars. Wow. She- <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get so many letters. You know, we're going to get so many letters. I know the difference. I swear, people, I swear. But yeah, she she loves it and it's fun, right? And um, why why would you write something if it's not fun? And I totally get like people work jobs they don't enjoy all the time. Like I've definitely been there, done that. But um, I don't know. I just, you're not going to do your best work. It's just not, you're not. Indeed. So I asked Monica because... Like I said, I don't really play RPGs and I also don't understand the the whole mechanics of like being a writer for an RPG, like yeah. how that all works out and and what you do. So I asked her just to explain to me like like how game writing works uh, on her end. And I'm so glad you did because I've always wondered. Um, so when you're writing a game, there's a couple of different pieces to keep in mind. Um, I view the rules or the system as the engine of a game because it makes the game go. And then there's the setting for the game, which is what a lot of game freelancers invest a lot of creativity in. And I, I consider that to be the vehicle. So combined, you have this, you're basically providing the ability for the players to drive this car, um, to have an experience for themselves at the table. 
And there's varying degrees to which games provide that experience. Some are very setting light, um, and those types of games, uh, an example of that game would be Dungeon World or Apocalypse World, where you build the setting as you play the game. I prefer games that are more setting intensive, like Shadowrun, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I've worked on Vampire the Masquerade. And a lot of those very setting rich games have a legacy because of the difference between playing a game for the rules versus playing it for its story. Um, there's a lot of different methods and styles of playing games, but in very lore-rich games, a lot of people get invested into it because they love the subplots. They love the possibility of all of these different types of stories. So when you're writing a game like that, the challenge is not thinking just about what you want, but what, what about the player might want. And you have to think about different types of players because even if you don't like a certain type of game, for example, if you're writing a horror game and you really don't like um, a certain type of monster that's been featured in the game, not featuring the monster is not a good solution because what ends up happening is, is that the players that are really drawn to that monster and in that game, you'll end up cutting them off. So if there's something that was done in the past that you need to redo, I mean, there's, there's sometimes issues with that. If you're creating a contemporary horror game, you have to weigh in, you know, what's happening at the time, how different trends are going, but also um, what's happening now may be dated in five, 10 years. Like the zombie craze, for example, it may not be around and, uh, you know, some propose that it's even dying off right now. So what you're looking for is the balance between what is the genre for this game? What is the genre as a whole? And then in this ability to provide this experience, what details am I bringing to the table so that people can tell their own stories? And to do that, you almost have to be, um, I use the phrase word conservation a lot because in word conservation, it's very punchy language. It's very dense language. It's focused on providing bits of story in almost every sentence or paragraph or even in the character write-ups to give people ideas so that they can run off and do their own games. Um, because that's really what you're doing. You're giving people a template so that they can say, oh my God, yes, I know how to play this game. I know exactly what story I want to play. And since you can't control what players or GMs or DMs or storytellers do at the table, you want to provide as much as you can within the confines of that space. Yeah, I find I find this fascinating. <laughs> um, just, yeah, the idea of like providing seeds for other people's creativity, but, but doing that involves like a whole lot of creativity. I don't know that I would necessarily know how to do that. No, me neither. It's really meta, <laughs> really, really, really meta. So when you play Dungeons and Dragons in front uh -huh. of a whole bunch of people um, for the first time, I, uh -huh. again, I slew you. Um, what, what were the things that, that were included in the game, I guess, that you felt were sort of that sparked your creativity when you, I guess, were creating your character and then dealing with that character moving through whatever game the person was running? So I so I play Dungeons and Dragons <clears throat> podcast plug. I play Dungeons and Dragons on a podcast called Total Party Kill on the Incomparable Network, which I talk about a lot because um, 
you know, that's where I am. Um, and uh, so the first time I played was for just a short run that they did. So they have, um, they kind of have two campaigns going um, and they kind of switch like se- seasons so that different dungeon masters can come in um, and, you know, kind of give give people a break and that kind of thing. So they'll do like an adventure and then the next uh, the next game will start with a different premise um, and different storyline. And so the first time I ever played Dungeons and Dragons was for their Shocktober special in 2015. And so it was just a four hour, a four episode run. And um, I actually handed a lot of stuff off to the Dungeon Masters. Um, I, I decided kind of what character and race I wanted to play and the name of the character and the gender of the character. And I said, hey, in this case, uh, it was uh, past guest uh, on originality, uh, Dan Morin and Tony Sindelar. And I said, hey, guys, here is what I want. Would you make me an appropriate character for this? And so I actually to date and I'm trying to think how many campaigns I've played now, um, you know, for like the the four I think it's four different games I've played. I've actually had someone else create the character for me. Um, and I've decided like the, you know, the basic things, but coming up with the stats and rolling for stats and balancing that all out is not something that I've, I've done. Um, I just kind of put it in their hands and trust them. Um, as for the role-playing part, it really depends upon the adventure. I tend to go, um, I guess just because of, how introverted I am. I tend to, uh, go for races that are more aloof and maybe on the slightly angry side. Um, so it gives me the chance to be bossy and get mad and, um, roll my eyes a lot. Like I do a lot of eye rolling because I play with people who like puns and I am not really a person who likes puns. Oh and no. So I do oh, a lot no. of, I do a lot of head shaking and just like head shaking. So um, it, it, it's interesting. And also I'm playing now, I'm playing in one of the larger adventures and it's with an established group with an established backstory. And even though I've listened to all of those episodes of Total Party Kill, I don't really know how I fit in that group yet. And so that's been really interesting, both from a role-playing perspective and from a like an lean feeling comfortable inserting herself into situations perspective. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I kind of pick, pick character traits, um, that are fairly easy for me. Like it's pretty easy for me to be sarcastic. That's just the humor I grew up with. I'm a very sarcastic person. I try not to be caustic. Um, sometimes I fail, but yeah, that, that that's what I do is I kind of have a baseline, like kind of personality, introverted type person and then I can get my legs under me as we play and decide where I want to take that like okay so does this character open up to the group now and that has a lot to do with how I feel about it like am I feeling comfortable and like I fit and and that kind of thing so um that was kind of a rambling answer that's okay that I again I find it all fascinating um and and I think that the thing that stands out to me and what you're talking about and also what Monica was talking about is how much 
collaboration is involved in doing this? Because, I mean, obviously it's a bunch of people sitting around a table all playing a game together, doing a thing. That's like a level of collaboration. But you, the fact that you like you put together like some parts of your character and then you hand it off to, to Dan and you're like, okay, the rest of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I find that interesting because I I don't know how these things work at all. So I'm just like, oh, you could do that. That's nice. Because, yeah, it seems like D&D involves a lot of math. There's like a lot of numbers. Are you adding? Yeah. And rolling dice. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Hmm. And finding things on character sheets. And then it gets, so I never have, I think I have a character that's level six. And that's just for that Shocktober special. That's where we started was level six. So I didn't advance one, two, three, four, five, six. They were just like, here's this, crea- this creation. Yeah. Here's this creation. You know, this is Anya. She's level six. And here you go. Um, but when you're playing the game and you start leveling up and you get more abilities, that's where we cut a lot of stuff out of the podcast where it's like, we're flipping through handbooks and, and, you know, trying to decide who, you know, who gets what thing. And, uh, yeah, so there, there are parts of it that are very like administrative. If you like bureaucracy, you might like. If you like doing paperwork, Dungeons hmm. and Dragons might be for you. But it's really um. those. <laughs> those are just a small piece, though. It's really for me. Um, one thing that I have discovered as really since I've joined the incomparable and been on the podcasts and started evaluating the pop culture, the things that we talk about, I've realized that. I am drawn to characters. And I think this is something I knew about myself, but not as I didn't know is as foundational as it is. So for me, playing Dungeons and Dragons is about one, the story, but two, you know, interacting with my friends in this different way and seeing where we take those characters. I like character driven stories. That's what, you know, like, um, Lord of the Rings is I can take it or leave it because I don't need a five hour battle scene. Like I need moments between characters for something to be compelling to me. And that's why I love RPGs is because it's a chance to tell a story and develop characters with friends. So it's more interesting and it creates um, it's like having a bunch of little chaos monkeys. <laughs> and you're like, this is how I'm going to handle this situation. Yay. And then someone's like, here's the monkey wrench and they throw it in. And um, <laughs> that's it, it's really I think it's really interesting and a good creative exercise, I feel. Yeah, definitely. So jumping off of that, I want to play something that Monica, a couple of things that Monica had to say about collaboration. Um, and this has to do both with the the side of the writing and developing of the game, um, as well as some of the stuff that comes out for the players. For companies that are well-established or properties that are well-established, there's usually a person in place who's known as a developer or a line developer. They're two different things. The developer is essentially the project manager that um, they do some writing on the game and they also bring the game to life. A line developer oversees that entire line of games. And that person puts together an outline and in in my opinion good developers will play to the writer's strengths um for new writers that means that they are hiring them for their creativity and then they'll baby step walk them through the very elaborate process of creating a game um so that 
they can feel comfortable with the process. Cause a lot of times the, the most intimidating thing about working on games is, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Cause people don't like to be wrong when they're trying something new. And then, so it really depends. Um, then the other reason why it depends is because often there's sometimes exclusions and plans and other things going on either at that company or with the company that they've partnered with where there's just some things that are out of bounds. So, um, you know, for it's the same like if I was working on a Transformers game, which, I mean, let's face it, Transformers versus Godzilla would be awesome. <laughs> but, you know, in, in order for something like that to happen, there would have to be like a lot of licensing agreements in place. And then in the same respect, what makes Transformers Transformers and what makes Godzilla Godzilla, I mean, those things would have to be in the game. So you're still you're still tapping into what this game should be, drawing on that love for the property from your own fandom. But when I was working in games, one of the things that did is it made me appreciate my editors more on the pro side. Because working in different aspects and different roles on game made me understand different perspectives so that when I'm thinking about editors, I no longer see them as, well, you know, they're tarnishing my genius. No, they're not tarnishing my genius. They're trying to bring out my best work. And that's really what game developers and game, game companies are trying to do while trying to ask people to write either towards a particular style or within the confines of their world, which, which can be very challenging for people sometimes. Yeah. I, I just like thinking about all the different parts of this um because you know you have games and some games are based on a franchise some games are you know like the next book in a long series of handbooks about the game the next edition and whatnot so you have all these different um people to please and uh, all these different roles that are involved in creating the game it kind of reminds me of the way that people talk about making movies or like you know we we focus so much on like oh it's the director that guy the producer that lady these actors in it, but there's like a, a city of people that are involved in making a movie and, and involved in making decisions about the movie. So just thinking about that all creativity in, in terms of like all the things that you, all the people you have to please, all the moving parts and, but, but that sort of also reaching into her prose work, thinking about, you know, how collaboration can make things uh, stronger. Um, so I, yeah, I love that idea. Yeah, and the thought of, like, you know me, editing is king, right? Editing is is what makes everything shine, and you can put your polish on it and everything. She said writing from an outline, and I, I shrunk into myself a little bit, and um, I don't oh, know no. why <laughs> I had such a visceral reaction to that, but I totally understand for this type of work why writing for an outline writing to an outline is extremely important because you've got, you know, s probably storylines and threads that are carrying through and you've got to hit notes that tie into other things later. And someone has to be the master planner of that. And, you know, someone needs to write to it. So. This goes back to a lot of, um, SJ Tucker was talking about in our, uh, interview with her, which is how, collaborating um with Kat Valenti in order to do the music for the Orphan's Tales you know just took her to a different place and it allowed her to be braver and accepting other collaboration requests and and how all of you know that like just it added to what she already had going on and, and deepened it in ways that she 
couldn't have predicted. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that's sort of the same thing here is like, you're, you're working with a bunch of people, you're creating a thing and there are some specific goals, but I'm sure that there are like some nice surprises that come out of that too. Uh, especially when you get to like release the game and then have other people play it and they're like, we did this. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's like magic. Magic. Well, writing is time travel. That's true. Because, like, I write a thing and then two years later you read it and I put a picture in your head. Ha ha. So slow. I'm a wizard. You are slow a wizard. Moving wizard. <laughs> slow moving wizard. <laughs> Long acting. No, no, you're not slow moving. Your spells are long acting. There we go. Mm-hmm. There we go. I put it. I did that. I made it. I put a picture in your head. Mm-hmm. Doing it right now. Mm. <laughs> so as I mentioned before, Monica uh, did work on the Firefly uh, role playing game and she's done work on other um games that take place in like established worlds you know she's talking about you know D&D Vampire the Masquerade and um I asked her just about like what are the what are the ways that a game writer can be creative within creating a, a game that happens in a you know with the setting is already set and uh, in the case of Firefly there are some characters that are already set and and how do you basically like create something that not only engages with fans and the things that they love but also is like engaging enough for you to like create your own game based on it so she talked about that the the creativity that comes into play working on games that are based on tvs or movies in particular like firefly um comes from figuring out what new things you can provide while putting together the pieces of what you need to cover from the existing property and a lot of times working on those types of properties it's a lot like putting a puzzle together because you have different people that you're trying to make happy depending upon the role that you're in there's the tv studio that you have the agreement with there's the publisher that you're putting the game together for but then there's the fans and there's more than one type of fan right there's fans of a system there's fans of a tv show there's fans of, you know, if there was a game like that one in the past, there's all these different kinds of fans. And somewhere in the middle, you have the restrictions of, well, the licensing company wants to make sure that this feels like a game of Firefly. So we need to provide and start with the canon that was established in the show, which is very challenging in the sense that there's only one season and that was all we could touch. We couldn't touch the dark horse comics or um, the serenity movie because that was a different license. So um, you start there and then the question becomes, well, how can we build off of this to create new material? Like where are the secondary characters coming in? And an example of something that we ended up doing was um, we created um, what are known as storyteller characters or NPCs or I, there's a lot of different ways of, of phrasing what these types of characters are, but basically what they are is they're secondary characters that the game master can pick up and run in the game um, that feel like they would be an active part of the Firefly world and are connected to different aspects of where the cast may have been. Um, you know, either a planet or a moon, or they were connected to one of the villains, et cetera. And that allows you to flesh out the setting by focusing on the characters that are in the world. Um, 
another way that we did that is I added a third type of character creation for the archetypes. And the archetypes were all the different types of roles that people might have in this world. And we ended up expanding it in every single book to have generic templates of characters so that when people wanted to see, oh, who could I play in this world? Well, I want to play, you know, a dock worker. Okay, you want to play a dock worker. That's absolutely believable in Firefly. So then we would write a little background for them and provide all the rules and and help them with a few decisions so that they could just take that and run with it. Yeah, I I love that and and I guess it it, it must be I'm trying to think of like if I was going to make a role-playing game out of some existing franchise it would probably have to be Star Trek because I know it far too well. And I'm <laughs> well aware that there are like a million Star Trek RPGs. But if I was going to do one, it would it would be Star Trek. I would, it would be on D Space Nine and and Ben mm. Cisco would not be gone from us. I have feelings. Um you, I have so no, many feelings yeah, about that. Okay. I had a cat named Cisco. So oh, oh, let's oh. just say how much feelings. I love Cisco. Yeah. Right? Feelings. Um and and yeah, like thinking about, okay, so you, you have all the different Starfleet characters that you could be, right? And the different, like you're a lieutenant, you're a commander, la la la. But some guy who just like sits at the bar, like I, I think that I would create a Mourn archetype. <laughs> there always has to be a Mourn, <laughs> There needs right? to be more Mourn. <laughs> there needs to be more Mourn. Um, I, I actually spend a lot of time thinking about what other... Uh, businesses are on the promenade because we don't get to see that many of them. There's like, you know, there's the replicant, the replimart, mm-hmm. whatever that place is called. Um, there Matt, doesn't seem Repl-Mat? to be a replimat. There we go. There doesn't seem to be a fine dining establishment anywhere in <laughs> Space Nine, which makes no sense. There's Quark's, <laughs> there's Garrick's terrible tailor shop. Um, there's the Jum Jum uh, uh, vendor who I don't even think she has a shop. I think they're just like a vendor. No, it's in like the a kiosk in the middle. Yeah, of they the have world. a kiosk. Yeah. <laughs> Deep Space Nine is the biggest mall. It's the biggest space mall. It is, though. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And then there's also, there's like a, there's some other dress shop because there's an episode where um, they bring the people from the wormhole onto the station and the, um, the universal translator isn't working yet. And so there's a lady who's like running around the promenade yelling at a dress. <laughs> And later Kira buys her the dress and she's like, I was saying this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And Kira's like, thank God, because it is truly ugly. I love it. So yeah, I, I would be the one running that. that dress shop. I see. I remember too many things. This is why. But I would make it. It would be great for making characters that live in the DSS9 universe because I would create a character who runs that shop and I would be like, how dare you call my dress ugly? <laughs> That's what I would just do all day. But, but yeah, I love that because yeah, there are so many different types of people who live in these universes other than the ones that obviously we'll see uh, regularly on television. Um, And so I love the idea of games allowing you to explore those other things. I mean, one of the things that Monica said to me is that with a game like, say, Firefly, or, you know, if there's a TNG role-playing game, I'm sure there is. I haven't ever looked, but I just know that such a thing must exist in the world. But at any rate, she said that um, when 
people first play that that type of game, usually what they do is their first adventure is like an adventure where they're all playing somebody in the main cast. And so um, I, I, she, I think she said in the back of the first book, they included a sort of like template for an adventure that you could have with the people from the main cast of Firefly as your sort of starter. But then after that, that's when you start to get into, okay, like what other characters can I play in this world? What other characters can I create and whatnot? And so, it, yeah, I just... I. This this whole process, as I keep saying, completely fascinates me. Yeah, well, and and so as a a game player, and I'm thinking more like video games, but like World of Warcraft, right? So as a player, it's fun for me. Again, as also a character driven uh, person. I liked like being able to be like, oh, this NPC, what is their story? And if I couldn't, and uh, it's non playable character for people who don't play like World of Warcraft or that kind of thing. Um, so it's a, a computer generated, you know, character with a script or whatever, and you can generally interact with them. But like, um, I'd be like, what is their story? And if it wasn't explained in game, a lot of times I could go to, you know, some kind of wow wiki and learn more about, you know, this character on the dock at, you know, Stormwind or whatever. And that was awesome. That was so much fun for me. I love that these kind of things exist now. Like you can have a wiki for your game that is right? like, oh, that random guy who was over there who gave you that key piece of information. Here's his Here's what's up with him. Here's what's up with that lady who called you into her house and gave you a loaf of bread and was like, go with God. Right. I'm down with this. I love yeah, I love it. Wikis in general. They make me so happy. Can I, just, can I just throw a random shout out to the people who run and the volunteers who uh, contribute to the Wiki of Ice and Fire, which is the Game of Thrones wiki? That is one of the best wikis, best fandom wikis I have ever, ever come across. Yes. Well, you kind of need it with that universe. It's so you do big. You do, and and here's the thing: like the the Wiki of Ice and Fire is the only reason why I understand what's going on on the Game of Thrones TV show. Because <laughs> I I won't watch really, but then I'll be like, "What's happening? Why is everybody on Twitter freaking out? What is the Red Wedding? What is going on?" Oh no! Don't look up the Red Wedding. The Wiki yeah. of Ice and Fire provided me with all the information that I needed, and I found links. To where I could learn how to play um, The Reigns of Castamere if I ever wanted to. I love that song, actually. That song is wrong. It's wrong on so many levels, but I love it. Love it. So anyway. um, So yeah, that kind of creativity, um, both is sort of like a feeding of the creative fire, as well as the, you know, having a creative mind of your own to come up with like here's how i can seed other people's creativity um that seems like a like an awesome special skill that the game writers have it's pretty neat Mm -hmm. agreed um and game writers don't only come up with character sort of seeds for you but they also come up with story seeds um as i was talking about you know as monica said she put like a or they put um a basic adventure in the back of uh the first firefly book i think but there are also other sort of story seeds in there. Um, and she talked a little bit about that and about the creativity that goes into that. The creativity was really about trying to figure out what types of stories to run because the plot hooks in a Firefly game, a lot of times are related to a heist or a um, search and rescue 
or something along those lines. So because it has such a strong Western feel and they don't really go into the core very much, there there was a lot of things that we did to kind of bring it back around to, okay, well, you know, Mal and his crew are fighting against the Alliance, so let's amp up that conflict in some of the story seeds that we have. Um, but most of the time for licensed properties, and this is this is generally true, people play their first game using the main cast characters to learn how to play the game. And then they want to create their own characters to be able to play in the world. So we had to try to find the balance between the two for, for licensing reasons, essentially. So what, Lynn, let me ask you, if you were going to run a game um, in D&D or another role-playing game you play, what is like the most fun story that, that you think you would like to do? Um, oh my gosh, there's so many things I love. Um, I don't know. You know, one that I think could be a lot of fun that I don't think there's a game for is actually uh, like the Percy Jackson series. Um, I don't know why, but the series has been on my mind a lot lately. And, um, I don't know. I think it could be like a fun intro for gaming, uh, or intro to gaming for kids, uh, using, you know, like Greek mythology and also incorporating things like the destigmatization of ADD. Like ADD is kind of a superpower and a big deal in these books. And uh, I think that could be a lot of fun. And there's so much to work for, work with and a lot of non-IP stuff because a lot of it is, you know, playing off of Greek myths. So there are a lot of directions that you could take. And I could see even, um, and I think the books have done this. I just haven't read far enough yet, but like incorporating other mythologies into it. Um, I don't know. I think it could be a lot of fun to weave all of that together. You just have to be careful. People are always trying to weave things. I was trying to weave and then they get it wrong. I That's want them true. to get it wrong. I want them to weave and get it right. I'd be well, down you, with that. Yeah, you need to get you need to get like the base done and then you need to do the weaving and expansions is basically my thought. Yeah, I think that would be fun. I was just thinking about how there's a a fan fiction that I started writing a long time ago that I didn't really finish because I'm not really a fan fiction writer. And I'm not saying that it's like, I'm, I'm a real writer, write fiction. No, it's not that. It's just that I have the same trouble finishing my fan fictions as I have finishing my original fictions. It's, it's, that's literally all it is. I finished one Stargate SG-1 fan fiction that wasn't very good a long time ago. Uh, but, but one fan fiction I started, which was based on something silly on the internet, is a Doctor Who D Space Nine crossover. And the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, if there was a D Space Nine role-playing game, which there probably is, I would want to run that role-playing game with the story that I created, like the basic story that I created mm-hmm. for my mm-hmm. Doctor Who crossover. And then, because one of the reasons why I stopped writing it is that I really couldn't figure out like how I was going to get from point A to B to C. Like I, I had sort of vague notion of how it was going to end. Basically the entire thing was, is I wanted um, River Song and Jordy LaForge to have sex. That's it. <laughs> how you get there from B Space Nine, that was what the story huh. was supposed to be about. And so, but now I'm just like, I want to run that as game. Like basic situation, it's Captain Jack and River Song are hanging out in the TARDIS that Jack grew. Because some... Uh, trivia for you. Jack was growing a TARDIS in Torchwood. Of course um, he was. And in, 
in my role in in my fan fiction, it didn't get destroyed when uh, the hub got blown up. It was it had been smuggled out before. But anyway, but uh, over uh, about a thousand years, Jack grew a TARDIS, and then he runs around in it, and he goes and picks up River Song from jail, and they are chasing a distress signal that was clearly meant for the doctor. It's also clearly a trap. And they're like, well, we can handle this. And so they go and they end up going through a tear in uh, the universe into another universe where Deep Space Nine exists. And the angels are there too. Uh, And this is before Stephen Moffat turned the angels into stupid, stupid things. Uh, Terrible. This was, I started writing this after Blink, but before any of the other Mm, angel stuff happened. Um, And... So, yeah, the, the angels are on Deep Space Nine. There's a reason. And Ro Laren is also in it. And she gets touched by an angel and gets sent back in time to the Enterprise. But she's super old when she, like, suddenly randomly appears on the Enterprise. And everybody's just like, what's going on? So, like, that was, that was where it started. I think that would make a great role-playing adventure. That's, and it has the complexity. I don't know that a book would be able to do it justice or you know a, this is why i stopped writing story. the fan thing <laughs> so i was just like this idea is really good i don't know i don't know what i'm doing there's like oh <laughs> you know elderly general kira like i will cut you she's still gonna cut you even mm-hmm. though she's like 102 years old because you know it's star trek everybody's living to 130 years old at this Whatever, point right Right. So, so elderly General Kira is like, I'm not here for any nonsense. What is going on? Um, She's also like super, super mean to all her ensigns who are Cardassians. But Uh that's not going to go away. That's not going to stop. And all the ensigns who are Cardassians are like, oh my God, how do we get a sign here? This is not what I joined Starfleet to do. I had so many plans. Anyway, um, (laughs) but, but yeah, now like I, I am, I love the idea of like, adventures of your own that you make in in a world of a franchise um that makes me happy there's so many things that make me happy with this episode today i don't know why Mm -hmm. i'm in a really good mood good uh so i asked um monica about some games that she has uh either worked on or played that really engaged her creativity when when she actually got to the the actual playing part of it, because I, I assumed, and, and apparently rightly so, that when you are a game writer, game developer, you actually do play the game that you've written, uh, I guess, to make sure that, you know, all the all the things work out. So uh, she told me about two of them that uh, just really engaged her creative brain. So for me, the, the game that really meant a lot to me was the game that never, that I worked on that never came out. And it's, you played Chimney Sweeps but you were not human. You were humanoid. And the whole point of the game was to, um, you were basically cleaning up the psychic dirt, if you will, from different people's houses in the guise of dirt. And it was, it, it was kind of this interesting cross between Victoriana and it had a little bit of steampunk because of the way that the vehicles went around. Um, but it also had kind of this deeper meaning because it wasn't just about, I slash things with my sword because I have that game. It's called Dungeons and Dragons. And when I need to, that's what I play. But at the same time, it it was something that just, it had a lot of, um, emotional pull because the whole purpose of your character was to help other people. And 
where the conflicts came into play was the things you were trying to clean up were resistant, not necessarily the people, because the people were there kind of in the background, but you know, that wasn't your primary focus. So I liked the perspective shift a lot. Um, I liked the fact that uh, I really dig a lot of non-humanoid games where you can kind of see yourself or envision yourself in this different shell. And I really liked the whole idea of you're kind of doing these things behind the scenes and nobody knows, and that's okay. So it was really cool for all those reasons. And, um, but especially because it was a lot about helping other people. It makes me kind of sad now that that game doesn't actually exist. I that, know. You know, she worked on it, but it never came out because that sounds amazing. Um, I want to be a chimney sweep taking away people's um, psychic dirt. Sicking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, I asked her about, you know, just the things that that really like pop for her creatively, because I know that Monica has like all these different, like very varied uh, interests. And so it was really neat to hear her talk about just the the kind of things that that get her excited, um, this world and uh, the, the things that people are doing and the fact that people are running around in secret. And I feel like, you know, that that speaks so much to just why games and and game writing can be so amazing because it allows you just to like tap into these different aspects of yourself that, that are amazing. Mm-hmm. I guess, I guess that's what I'm looking for. Um, the, the other game that she talked about, I'm, I want to play uh, a little part of what she said about it because it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is just like the experience of playing game with other people. What I liked about it was that, um, you as a group at the table had a goal, but you also could play off against each other. And that one was a lot more individualistic than the other one was, but I liked it for that reason too, because it wasn't just the same sort of game. Cause in most games, there's two questions you have to ask. What's the individual player do at the table? What do people do as a group? And in the second game, what the individual player does is for their faction or for their cult. And as a group, you're, you know, the whole key is survival or you're hired to do this gig and whatnot, but your goals may not necessarily align with somebody else's goals. And some of those powerful moments that I've had in game have, have basically come down to motivations at the table. Like, why are you there? What are you there to do? And then if those are at odds with one another, how does that affect each, how does that affect you? Um, And those are the ones that tend to be more memorable for me because that kind of conflict is really fascinating to me from not only a playing perspective, but a storytelling perspective, Um, because it's not something that's easily resolved with bullets and a gun. Yeah, definitely. I'm down with that. And, and yeah, like the, just all the different ways that you have to work with other people. And again, it reminds me of what SJ Tucker was talking about with collaboration and and how you have to be open to it. And I'm sure that when you sit down to play a role-playing game, you don't necessarily have to have a body made of light, uh, which is another metaphor that we we use when we were talking about collaboration in that episode, um, in order to have a good experience. But it does rely on you having either a good connection or with, or I guess some trust with the people that you're role-playing with. Mm-hmm. But I... I cannot particularly speak to that, but I'm sure that you can. Um, I, to a point, I think that that's very 
very true. I mean, um, so there's, again, the campaign that we're playing now, there's a, a character played again by a guest of originality, Jason Snell, um, who is a, a, a mole, which is, I think, half dwarf, half human, and he's a, a gladiator and a former slave and um, behaves really unpredictably. And so he, specifically when I was thinking of chaos monkeys throwing monkey wrenches into things, I was thinking about Jason playing this character. Um, but if he didn't do that, it would be more confusing. Like if he just went along with things, it'd be like, why, why aren't you causing chaos and destruction wherever you go? You know, so it's interesting how the chaos can present itself in different ways or these interactions like, uh, behaving in character, I guess. And when people do that and when they don't and in what they think about their character, I mean, it's just very much like humanity. Like, what do I think about who I am, Aline? And what do other people perceive that to be? And do I always behave in a way that, um, they, they think I will probably not, but it's always, you know, generally makes sense to me. Yeah. I I think that's just a hallmark of, of all character creation. Although, Mm -hmm. I don't know if other writers think about it necessarily this way. I know that, for instance, there's there are a lot of people who roll their eyes at the notion of like the character ran away with the story. They were doing all these things, mm-hmm. and I didn't attend it. Blah blah. And other writers are like shut up. That's it's coming from your own head. Um, but in a way, I I understand how that can happen because it it has happened to me a couple of times, and I am well aware that it is happening because as I'm going along, I'm discovering things about this character. And as I discover things, I'm like, oh, well, if this is true about them, then they're not going to do this. They're going to do that. I wanted them to do this. But then it became very clear to me once I realized X, Y, and Z about them that they wouldn't do that because their background in X would stop them. Mm -hmm. That's basically like every time I am stuck it usually has something to do with me not paying attention to what my characters would do. Oh, interesting. Based on their background versus what I have decided they are going to do because of what's happening with the plot. And so that's the most frustrating thing. And it really frustrates me because every time when that's the problem, I forget that that was the problem before. And I sit around going, why, did, why isn't it working? Why don't the characters do what I tell them to do? La, 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 la. I'm like, oh, Oh, because of that thing. Um, that thing that's <laughs> but always you realize it. the thing. I, I eventually realize it. Sometimes it takes a while, uh, but I eventually realize it. But but in, in that situation, like I have control of all the characters. I have control over like everything from the setting to the storyline to whatever. But in role-playing games, you don't have control over everybody. Even if you're the, the dungeon master, the game master, the GM or the DM, you don't have control over everything, mm-hmm. which I imagine can sometimes be frustrating when people just roll off the rails and just do whatever. Yeah, that might be an interesting episode to do too. So uh, again, my experience with uh, listening, I wasn't a part of this part, this campaign, but there's this episode where um, the players decided to do like, for whatever reason, they did like this deep dive into an NPC, like 
you know, what is it? What is this NPC's name? Why? Why are they doing this? What is their motivation? And the DM's like, I have to make something up. And why are you doing this to me? This is <laughs> it's amazing, you know. And um, so that might be something interesting to explore later. Is like the creativity of uh, running a game like this because you know, uh, it, it just cracks me up the number of times a player will ask a question in the DM, you know, you can see them over, you know, we do Google Hangouts or Skype video or whatever, and they just shake their head and they're like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't How know why. Could you? I don't know what color shirt that NPC is wearing. I don't know, you know, like. How could you not know the color of the shirt? <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, a webcomic that I read uh, a while ago, so I'm not entirely sure if it still exists. And of course, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll, I will find it. Um, I will find the name of it and I will put that and maybe a link to it in the show notes. Um, but it was it's a comic that has the same idea as DM of the Rings. Have you ever heard of DM of the Rings, Aline? No. OK, DM of the Rings was uh, a brilliant concept where basically the the webcomic person took shots like stills uh from the lord of the rings movies and over top of that he basically constructed a world in which a group of friends got together to play a role-playing game and the role-playing game is the lord of the rings and so the the shots from the movie are like you know the the people who are controlling the characters as well as they, whatever the characters say. And the DM is like, what are you doing? Why are you going over there? And they're like, you know, I don't know. Mary likes horses and Mary's going to go pet this horse. And he's like, stop it. You're, <laughs> you know, you're ruining everything. And so like all these, you know, and all the things that happen are happening in this role-playing game. So you get like both the interaction between the, the people who are sitting around playing the game as well as the interaction of the characters. I, I love that concept. It was brilliant. And I only found out about it because I came across a webcomic that did the same thing, but with the Star Wars prequels. Oh, so, and it was a different person. It wasn't the same person who did DM of the Rings. So I think DM you know, of the Rings was still going on when the Star Wars one started. And that one was amazing because all the stupid things that happen in the prequels are down to like terrible things that happen around the rolling table. <laughs> Which I found to be precious and charming. So one of the things that happens is like, so in the first movie, the first Star Wars movie, when they get to Tatooine and they go into the town and Qui-Gon is trying to do whatever he's didn't do and they come across uh, little Anakin um, in the webcomic, he was just some NPC who comes in, you know, he's a little kid, he's got some stuff, he's going to build something, whatever. <laughs> they They had actually, they thought that they were going to be bringing in this uh shmi his mother because like one of the dudes he he asked a girl to join them and so like she's the only girl so she gets to play this mother right of and course. so right so they, right so so they thought that she was the shmi was going to be the one but like something happens like some bad role or whatever and it turns out that it's anakin and so then the dm is just like oh my god i have to come up with a name for this kid and a backstory what is going on? Why have you done this to me? And I thought that that was the most amazing thing that like Anakin wasn't even supposed to be there. He was just supposed to be some throwaway NPC, but no, now he's the star of the show. And, and so then the, the girl who was going to play me, like she ended up playing Anakin and there was like this really sweet moment where she was like, okay, wait a minute, let me do a thing. And so when, when Anakin's mother, like, 
says to him, like, you have to go, you should go, don't worry about me or whatever. Like, she plays that scene herself because she's both characters. And then she sort of, like, switches from being Shmi to being Anakin. And the DM was like, that was actually really beautiful. I'm going to give you some extra experience points for how good that made me feel. So that's my only glimpse into the world of gaming, but I thought that was very sweet. That is awesome. I love that idea. The NPC just, like, took over. (laughs) He wasn't supposed to be anybody. They they do that. I think they do that. How dare they? Yippee. How dare they? All right. So was was there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of like games and writing? No, I'm fascinated. And I'm so glad. Uh, listener Nicholas, thank you for suggesting this. And um, I'm glad you knew somebody that we could have on because it's it's really fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and I just, I really admire Monica's um, I don't, her her flexibility and her stretch and all of her creativity because you know she like I said she's prose comics she makes this beautiful jewelry she's all stuff and she's also just like a really awesome person and and this has actually made me a little bit interested in in perhaps giving some role playing games a try but I'm telling you I don't know if I'll do it unless I can play my Deep Space Nine Doctor Who crossover <laughs> game. I don't know, but somebody, I'm sure a listener out there will tell me where I can find the Deep Space Nine role-playing game and one of the Doctor Who role-playing games. Maybe we could just, like, take both boxes and sort of, like, throw them (laughs) together. together. (laughs) Mash them together and then make some sort of game out of it. I don't know. I don't know. I know that there have been Star Trek RPGs, but I don't know if there's a DS9 one. We'll just have to make it up for ourselves. We could do that. We could do that. We could do that. Well... I and I also um I'm gonna put out there that I, I'm really interested in talking to to more games people and like people who write for video games, which is also like a whole other thing. I'm completely fascinated by that process because again, it seems like it's so very involved crafting like a a whole bunch of different storylines um for different types of characters and how like depending on what you choose at the beginning of the game in terms of like not only what archetype your character is playing but maybe what gender they are um whether they choose to go with this faction or that faction and it's a it's a different game depending on those choices and so i would be very interested in talking to somebody or multiple somebodies who are involved in that process too to talk about how how they make that creativity happen and, and where where those ideas arise from so, but I know people in that space, so I can, yeah. I can help us out there. Um, yes. To all of that. Uh, I'm true on this, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Five of our dreams, five of our dreams are coming true. <laughs> it's going to happen. Uh, but I want to thank Monica Valentinelli uh, again uh, for agreeing to talk to me about this stuff. You can find all of her work at her website. Her website is booksofm.com and that's just what it sounds like books of m as in monica.com uh if you want to find her on twitter she is books of m at books of m on twitter and she also has facebook under her name if you're wondering about how to spell valentinelli it's really easy you ready it's valentine ellie <laughs> like that's it <laughs> valentine l-l-i get it um so yeah, so so definitely follow her on Twitter. Um, she has a lot of really awesome things to say about the writing process and being a creative person. Um, and and she'll talk about gaming and writing and comic books and, and all that stuff if you're interested yeah. on her blog and, and whatnot. Yay. 
And you can find wow. us on Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. Where can you find us, Aline? <laughs> I am Aline on Twitter. It's A-L-E-E-N. And you can find Tempest at Tiny Tempest. Um, I would encourage you to become a Relay FM member if you are not already, because we're actually continuing this conversation uh, with Monica in a members only, a short members only episode. So if you want to hear more from her about uh, like diversity and inclusion um, and representation, then that is a place to go to to get more of her thoughts. And uh, you can find the show itself on uh, Twitter at Originality FM. And until next time, be creative. And play a game. Like even solitaire. Oh my God, we should talk. I could have an episode about mobile games. Oh my God. I want to talk to the person who first developed the storyline for Diner Dash because I want to, I have questions about flow. Jeez. I have questions about flow.